Hey there. Thanks for listening to the show. Let me begin the episode with a quick update on some information I've received from the New Hampshire State Police. If you remember the beginning of our last episode, I was hopeful that New Hampshire might finally come through with some real details of their part in Richard Adderson's investigation. Although David Hiltz, legal counsel for the commissioner of the state's Department of Safety, had written, information compiled for law enforcement purposes is being withheld that, if released, would reasonably be anticipated to interfere in law enforcement proceedings, I imagined he would be sending official reports with redacted information in a good-faith effort to appear transparent. Yeah, that's not the case. What Mr. Hiltz did send me was nine pages of inconsequential crap. Two wanted posters. I've seen those. Four press releases. Nothing new. A printed page from New York State Police's own homepage. Thanks, Dave! And a copy of a newspaper article from the Poughkeepsie Journal. Goosed again. (laughs) You cheeky devil. When I first began researching the Richard Adderson homicide and subsequent police investigation, I began where the crime occurred in the town of Fishkill, New York, located in Dutchess County, a little more than an hour north of New York City. I started with local papers, the Hudson Valley Press, the Journal News, the Southern Dutchess News, and the Poughkeepsie Journal, a paper for which Richard's own son would work. Every article I found lent varying descriptions of the same story. On February 5th, 1997, At about 6 p.m. on I-84, Richard Adderson was involved in a minor collision with an unknown suspect's vehicle. An argument ensued, during which Adderson was shot once in the chest. After the shooting, the suspect left the scene and continued eastbound on Interstate 84. Richard would call 911 and describe his killer and his late model Jeep Cherokee. From the very beginning, I felt something was deliberately being withheld from the story. Someone, somewhere, wasn't saying something. When I found the Unsolved Mysteries episode, I was hopeful that it might provide a more in-depth look at the events surrounding Richard's murder. But I was again disappointed with the superficiality of coverage. Thankfully, It did humanize Richard and his family more so than any of the articles I had read to that point. Although listening to the anguish in his wife Laura's voice and to Richard's own panic in that 911 call was deeply disturbing. Nevertheless, the show didn't provide me with any more facts of the case. It just replayed the same old story. Admittedly, I was frustrated with the lack of information readily available online, in libraries, from the police. It was like encountering a wall of silence just about everywhere I searched. I even traveled up to Manchester to do some detective work on my own. Without much success. 
but it wasn't until I came across an obscure webpage with an archive of poorly scanned local New Hampshire news articles that I first learned some hard facts about Richard Adderson's investigation. This first article was difficult to read, but the year 1997 was legible on the top of the page. In the left-hand column, there was a new section titled Notes, and buried in the middle of those notes was a bulletin about the Adderson investigation. A reporter by the name of Sissy Taylor wrote that an unknown person, presumably with some relevant information about the Adderson homicide, had enlisted the services of a Manchester-based attorney, Peter D. Anderson, to intercede on his behalf in the investigation. Someone in Manchester hired a lawyer to look into this case? It was a red flag, and finally, I had some specific information about the case and a fresh new lead to investigate. From the outskirts of New York City, Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. Who is Sissy Taylor, and how do I get in touch with her? I googled her name. I was six years too late. The first thing that came up was her obituary. I discovered Margaret Sissy Taylor had passed in 2012. Originally from Kentucky, Sissy moved to New Hampshire shortly after college and worked as a reporter for the Derry News, as well as the New Hampshire edition of the Eagle Tribune. In 1988, she moved to Manchester, where up until her retirement, she served as the crime reporter for the Union Leader newspaper. She was outgoing, gregarious, and loved by all who met her. And she was famous for throwing her annual Kentucky Derby parties, full of mint juleps, Kentucky ham, and a little southern charm. As I read her obituary, one line really caught my attention. Her colleague, Alan White, of the Eagle Tribune, noted that Sissy was a terrific reporter who genuinely cared about the people she wrote about. People sensed that, and they were willing to talk to her when they might not have talked to another reporter. In all, I found 11 articles written by Sissy Taylor between February 1997 and July 1998 about the Richard Adderson case and the hunt for his killer. When you read the articles in chronological order, you get an understanding of the evolution of the police investigation. But one question lingered for me. Why did this Manchester reporter dedicate herself to writing 11 articles about a New York homicide over the course of about a year and a half? That's a lot of coverage by any measure. What did Sissy know about Adderson's killer? I reached out to her former co-worker and current editor of The Union Leader. He wrote back to me, quote, Sissy knew a good story when she saw one, but perhaps she had a hunch about this one that caused her to keep after it. 
11 articles was a lot back then. Today, it would have to be the Manson gang or the first moon landing to rate that much attention. End quote. The equivalent of the moon landing? This is Houston. Say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. I couldn't help but think Sissy knew something. Is it possible that she knew more than she was willing to report? Did she have access to some inside information about the shooting that she couldn't yet print? By all accounts, she was a first-rate reporter with integrity. While she may have known more than she let on, she may not have wanted to expose a source without fully vetting them or stoke the flames of allegations without corroborating evidence. Eleven articles about the same crime leads me to suspect that Sissy may have known something about the case that she would not or could not report. Eleven articles. As the editor of the Union Leader said, that's the equivalent coverage of the moon landing. Sissy Taylor was onto something. When you read her reporting, you get the sense that she was determined to stay on top of every new development in this case, no matter how small, determined to boldly follow the course of the investigation every step of the way to wherever that may lead her. In Sissy's coverage, you can hear the activity in the case, the conversations with law enforcement, the news bulletins, the pleas for help, New York State Police racing to New Hampshire to investigate new leads. You can feel the momentum of the investigation rising. Allow me a quick recap of Sissy's reporting. February 7th, 1997. The first news of the homicide breaks. The details are sparse, but important. The gunman drove a late model green Jeep Cherokee style vehicle, believed to have New Hampshire license plates. He was heading eastbound on I-84. The next day, February 8, 1997, we learn that the assailant is a white male between 40 and 50 years old, bearded and balding. New Hampshire State Police say that there are over a thousand green 1996 to 1997 Jeeps registered in the state. They're searching for one with potential damage from the collision with Richard's Volvo. February 13, 1997, five days later, Sissy Taylor reports that New York State Police release a composite drawing of the gunman. It depicts a white male approximately six feet tall, thin, and appearing to be in his late 40s to early 50s. The suspect has a medium complexion with a thin nose, a receding hairline, glasses, and possibly a closely cropped beard. He's described as messy or unkempt. The following month, March 20th, 1997, the search continues. 
Sissy Taylor reports that New Hampshire State Police say that they have four green 1997 Jeep Cherokees left to check out of approximately 1,300 before turning their attention to 1996 models. Sissy's paper, The Union Leader, reprints the description of the gunman, along with a request from state police urging anyone who might recognize the driver or who might have information about the shooting to contact New Hampshire or New York State Police. August 8, 1997, five months later, Sissy reports that the search is heating up. Highway gunman search intensifies in New Hampshire, she writes. After inspecting 450 green Jeep Cherokees and interviewing some 12,000 people, New York State Police investigator James Carrick is reported as saying that information had been developed that led New York State troopers to believe the gunman has ties to the Manchester area and that he personally believes several people in the Manchester area have information concerning the shooting. This is a major lead in the case. We also learn that Richard was on the phone with 911 for about nine minutes, and during that time span, he provided the emergency operator with a description of his killer. To this day, 21 years later, neither the full recording nor the transcript of that phone call have ever been released. A suspicious fact that continues to trouble me, as it should anyone with an interest in transparency in this case. September 11th, 1997. It seems someone's getting nervous. Sissy Taylor's headline reads, City Lawyers' Questions Tied to New York Murder. New York State Police report an unidentified attorney from the Manchester law firm of McLean, Graff, Rallerson, and Middleton is reportedly looking into information about the homicide for a client. The unnamed attorney, who will not cooperate with police, refuses to divulge his client's name, citing attorney-client privilege. September 18, 1997, seven days later, the attorney is identified. His name is Peter D. Anderson of the law firm McLean Middleton. Anderson, not to be confused with our Richard Adderson, had begun making inquiries into the homicide as early as April 1997, some two months after the murder. I conducted some follow-up research and learned that Anderson was an established criminal attorney, and one of his more notable clients was Stephen Burke, a member of a Massachusetts gang of professional criminals who was eventually convicted of racketeering, bank robbery, armored car heists, and murder. Interestingly, criminal types have an unwritten code of silence among themselves, omerta, as the Sicilian mob calls it, the certain loyalty to silence and a refusal to give authorities information no matter what the circumstances. Well, in this case, that code of silence was broken and Burke's fate would be sealed by the testimony of his own neighbors. I bring up Stephen Burke for two reasons. The first, as an example of the type of client that Peter Anderson represented. He was and continues to be a skilled defense lawyer who currently serves as the director of McLean Middleton's litigation department. And secondly, to illustrate the fact that someone, somewhere, always knows. And it's just a matter of coming forward and breaking their silence. 
no one stays silent forever. Now we jump from September 1997 to January of 1998. Sissy's next story reads, Tips about Jeep murder bring New York detectives back. New York State Police investigators returned to New Hampshire after America's Most Wanted profiled Richard's case. Senior investigator Matthew Renneman would go on to say, We feel strongly there are people in New Hampshire who know who this person is. It's a matter of getting the right person to give us a call, give us a name, and we'll do the rest. Renneman would also confirm that the victim told 911 operators several times that the shooter was driving a Jeep with New Hampshire license plates. There didn't seem to be any hesitation on that fact, Renneman said. And witnesses at the scene confirmed Addison's description. April 7th, 1998. New York State Police dropped the bombshell that Addison's killer identified himself as a cop. And of course, Sissy Taylor was there to report it. She also quotes senior investigator Renneman as saying that New York authorities had begun researching the limits of attorney-client privilege. Thereafter, we enter into the summer of 1998. It's July and Sissy Taylor is once again busy reporting the ongoing developments in the Addison investigation. She interviews Richard's wife, Laura, in an effort to appeal to the community through the union leader newspaper for someone to finally come forward. The previous day, New York State Police had made a similar plea to the public for cooperation in their investigation. Sissy also disclosed that McLean Middleton had hired the attorney Kathy Green to independently represent the firm in dealing with the Dutchess County District Attorney's Office. So let's recap that. A mysterious client hires a law firm. That law firm then hired a lawyer to protect them from the investigation. Essentially, the unknown suspect was now doubly insulated from law enforcement's reach. And while Sissy didn't personally pen the compelling editorial that ran in the Union Leader on July 20th, 1998, she undoubtedly inspired the sentiment and determination of it through her tireless coverage of the investigation. The editorial reads, Richard Adderson was a respected teacher. His senseless murder, which has been featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted, must be solved. As we say... Someone in the Granite State knows the man in the police sketch. A friend, acquaintance, co-worker, a fellow church member, even a family member. Somebody suspects that the man in this sketch is a person he knows. If so, that individual has a moral obligation to do the right thing and contact the police. No one should be allowed to get away with cold-blooded murder. Don't.
believe Sissy expected this case to reach its conclusion sooner rather than later. She repeatedly referenced New York State Police Investigator James Carrick's assertion that he believed several people in the Manchester area have information concerning this shooting. It's almost as if she was winking at her readers and the killer himself, telling them all that justice will be served in due time. I would have liked to have spoken with Sissy Taylor and picked her brain about the Addison homicide and investigation. Perhaps she held a clue that would shed new light on the case. But again, too little too late. Her obituary reports that Sissy died on Monday, April 9, 2012. And yet, she wasn't discovered in her home until Friday, April 13th. An inauspicious date, to be sure, in a case filled with strange occurrences. I spoke with a close friend a while back who, with the assistance of police, was the first to find her in her apartment. Sissy had apparently suffered a heart attack, but her friend told me that Sissy's brother distrusted that official report. He ordered an independent autopsy at the state medical examiner's office in Concord, New Hampshire, to determine her cause of death. In all likelihood, Sissy suffered a tragic, premature death at the young age of 64, less than a month before her 65th birthday. But with all we do know about this case, is it out of the realm of possibility that she fell victim to knowing too much about Richard Adderson's killer? Unfortunately, we'll never know. The Chinese philosopher Lao Cha tells us Those who know, don't talk. Those who talk, don't know. And I'll admit, I've been doing a great deal of talking without knowing all the facts in this case. Some of history's greatest philosophers, Socrates, Lao Cha, the Buddha, and Jesus, were exceptionally reserved in their judgment. Much of their wisdom left unsaid, and only relatively small portions of it committed to paper. I suppose Socrates was more on the loquacious side, too much so for his native city of Athens to put him on trial for fomenting unrest. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. But Socrates couldn't help himself. But need it be said that the Buddha wasn't a big talker? The Buddha once spent seven weeks meditating in silence under a fig tree, It was quite a payoff. He found enlightenment. It's been 21 years since Richard Adderson's murder. For us, it's only through digging, probing, teamwork, investigation, and a little bit of luck that we'll come to know the true nature of Richard Adderson's case. All the facts still aren't there. The missing 911 transcript, the mysterious client of the law firm, Sissy Taylor's death. And that's why I keep talking, in hopes to stir from the silence a new lead, to discover the truth and secure justice. I'll admit, I'm inclined towards certain conclusions, but instinct and intuition don't hold up in a court of law. You need evidence. If you know something about this case, please come forward. 
through my investigation, I've come across a name, a name of someone that I've desperately wanted to release because I believe that they are a viable suspect in Richard Adderson's homicide. But I'm going to remain silent on that for now and give you, our listeners, the opportunity to tell us what you think about this case. Call us at 917-410-5528, and I'll post that number on Instagram and Twitter, and tell us what you're thinking. Do you have a hunch? Have you heard any rumors about the case? Even if you just have an opinion about the show, call us and let us know. Let's keep talking about this. We'll dedicate our next show to as many of your questions and comments as we can. I want to thank you all for listening to the show and joining me on this case. Unfortunately, Mr. Slim Turkey couldn't join us this week, but he will be back for our next episode, answering your questions and comments. Now, if you like the show, fatten up the turkey with some positive reviews on iTunes and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, I'll post our phone number on all three. Call us with your comments, questions, theories, and hopefully some tips about this case at 917-410-5528. Again, 917-410-5528. I'm confident that we'll be able to share all your messages on our next episode. As I always say, we'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. (laughs) 